Welcome to Cross of Gold, the podcast where two brothers, one a Christian in the political wilderness and the other a socialist in the spiritual wilderness, work to rediscover faith in each other, our communities, and the American experiment. We have begged and they have walked when our calamity came. We beg no longer, we defy them. You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. Hello, my name is Cyrus. You're uh, joining us for hopefully your second episode. For those just joining us for the first time, that's okay. You haven't missed much yet. I'm uh, here with my brother, Chase. Chase, how's it going? That's right. I'm excited to get it going. Uh, Our purpose in episode number two and three is to lay out a foundation of where we're at right now, what we believe, what we're unsure about, and how we're going to uh, carry our current perspective into some of these uh, conversations, explorations, maybe some arguments. Today, Cyrus, you're supposed to lay out what's going on with socialism for you and, and what you believe about it. Yeah, yeah. I, well, you know, for all those people who are uh, about to find what I'm about to say wildly offensive, I hope you'll stick around for episode three, where uh, my brother will elucidate his more Christian worldview. But I'll try to do my level best to represent these views as as best as I can, as fairly as possible, and hopefully uh, maybe clear up some miscommunications, some ahistorical things that have colored this ideology and go from there. Okay, Cyrus. So can you boil socialism down for me? I feel like I've heard it multiple different times, multiple, multiple different ways. What's it mean to you for the purposes of our combo? Yeah, well, that's, I think, a question that a lot of socialists are asking themselves. A lot of socialists are pretty new. Um, to it. And I don't pretend to be the authority on socialism by any means. But what I will say is my understanding of socialism, the operating definition I'm going to be, is kind of twofold. One is that socialism is the democratization of like, all parts of our life, rather than for us in America or in you know the Western world largely, democracy means being able to vote for a political representative. That's pretty much the full definition, full usage of democracy. What socialism would do is democratize all parts of our, because when you are at work, it's not really like you're living in a democracy. You're living in a dictator um, for those eight hours, 40 hours a week. Uh, I'll try hours, 60, baby. 80. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, like we, we've talked about my uh, desire to work and my desire to find <laughs> ways to not. <laughs> but um, yeah, so that that is kind of the base idea is returning... Okay. The ownership of the means of production, this uh, control over the workplace back to the people who are actually the work producing the things that the workplace produces. So are you saying when you like the means of production and the workplace, is it would it be like everybody owns everything or would it be groups of people owning different things? I, I, I Again, not trying to argue, but bring it out. Like, are you saying like all employees would own all businesses or some employees would own some businesses? Well, you know, all like socialism is and especially Marxism is not really necessarily about mapping out exactly what the future would look like, what the system, what what shape it will take. That's why there's so many so much fighting on the left of all these people who disagree. The way I look at it is that I in in somewhere deep into the future, after probably centuries of struggle and and fight for these things and along with that struggle, a mutual evolution of like our consciousness towards that's more oriented towards a society that's structured this way, that we will someday get to owning all things in common. But for for our purposes here, you know, any time in the foreseeable future where 
a socialist project might take root in America. I think it would look a lot more like individual workers or workers at a certain firm owning, having ownership over, over that firm, or at least some stake in the company, you know, 50% ownership. So like an uh, idealized Costco. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, like Costco, that sort of those those methods of that they use for, you know, worker retainment and worker satisfaction, like taking those to their fullest extent. You know, people talk a lot about like, oh, I wish my workers would get more invested in, would take more ownership over their work. Well, if you want workers to take ownership over their work, maybe you should give them some ownership. What could make someone more invested in the success of their firm than actually having direct financial compensation? Interesting idea, just, and I'm not endorsing all this, but... I use or have used some of the same arguments for capitalism and property ownership. Well, if you want people to take better care of their property, or that's the reason maybe most clearly stated uh, Soviets or whatever didn't take great care of their property because they didn't own it. Well, if they feel some stake of ownership in it, whether it be a home or a business, you see greater um, opportunities for productivity. Is that right? Yeah, well, that's yeah, largely that's what I would say is that if you have some in actual investment into the system in which you're, you're operating, then you will be more inclined to see that system succeed. You know, like worker worker co-ops would be a small scale example that could be, you know, scaled up. I don't and I'm not necessarily, you know, pitching any of these as the solution. I'm just saying these are possible ways socialism could take shape. Ways I think in the United States it would probably end up going if it ever did by any model. Okay. Um, So, you know, that's like something Bernie was really big about was giving like the workers of corporations who had a 50% stake or 50% of the board seats. Yeah. You know, that's one I've turned around on. CEOs get paid a lot. I wouldn't mind some workers repping worker pay. But you mentioned something else about this definition of socialism, which was the evolution or the growth of human consciousness. So I've heard you say it's a democratization of all means of production in some way but it's also predicated on this evolution of consciousness. Can you just maybe quickly describe that? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, that, it's a little, little bit more abstract, so I'll try to keep it as grounded as possible. But what I generally mean by that is that socialism sort of represents not so much a redistribution of material wealth, but a redistribution of suffering. Because, of course, we all understand that like there are people who not, are not born with the luxury of being born in the United States. All the comforts and conveniences we have here and like suffer greatly for most of their life. And these are in the billions, the majority of the world's populace, their life. And so, you know, we in the United States prize this ability to like develop ourselves, to grow as people, to reach fuller heights of our human potential. And if we're all struggling to do that, striving to do that as individuals, it's going to be almost impossible, in, in my opinion. However, if we have some sort of solidarity and a common understanding that like we can't allow we like we can't have four billion people who have no potential to really fully develop themselves over half of the world's population like that, that that is dragging us down as a species trying to come into a consciousness of itself. To repackage what um, you just said, maybe in like a how I'd like to hear it, it would be something like the more means of production, the more people have, then the better off everyone will be and the better off future potential is well yeah i mean i think just striving for common goals and that common goal being the alleviation of suffering for huge portions of our population with the added incentive of also providing security 
and a, a removal of the fear of precarity from your life, then you are going to develop more greater bonds between humans. Precarity, um, you got to dumb it down for me, dude. That's like a $4 word. Uh, well, precarity, I, I mean, as you know, like the, the fear that that you are on the edge, that things that things could, I think most Americans, if they really search their hearts, would realize they are way, way closer to being homeless than they are to being a billionaire. And the leisure, the, the leisure time that we do have is we're so brain dead from these jobs that, you know, work at that provide us no personal satisfaction. That by the time most people get home, they're not interested in doing a biblical exegesis or studying philosophy or improving their body. They're, they sit down and watch TV for five hours because it's ready-made entertainment. So, so what saying. I'm talking about is, is, is not this idea of socialism of everyone, you know, just being able to stay at home and watch TV all day and do whatever they want. And that's how life is lived. It, it's about actually developing ourselves and that leisure, the leisure time, the ruling classes have always had is what enabled them to keep power because it's freedom. It's it enabled, enables you to develop yourself in a way that the people who you're struggling against cannot. So this, that's kind of how I see it is, is it's a democratization of leisure as well. It's allowing everybody time and energy to develop themselves fully as much as they can. And if you do that with everyone combined all at the same time, I think maybe we have a chance to, uh, to save ourselves. You know, you used a good example when mom and dad still lived in California and whatever, we were in the fast lane or um, dad had was like leasing a, an energy car. And you know what? You just started going off on a rant talking about you know, rich people can literally get places faster and or stay at work <laughs> longer or whatever, just because if you pay for the if you pay, you can pay to play. You can move faster. Yeah, no, exactly. It's it's literally it's a it's a a time tax on poor people. Uh, like the rideshare lanes in, in LA and these other major cities, because the only people who can really afford to do them are rich people who they don't care if they buy, you know, $50,000 Tesla. I don't even know how much Tesla's cost. Or carpoolers. We got to give it to carpoolers. Don't forget. Yeah, I mean, got to give it up to carpoolers, but it's, that's tough. Man, over a year ago, mid-2019 or about a year ago, Gallup says 40% of Americans are favorable of socialism in some form or fashion. Um, why is that? Or how, why do you view that to be the case? And what does that mean to you? Sure. Well, to start, I'll caveat by saying what Americans mean by socialism and the way it's defined, I think probably there's a lot of uh, wiggle room there. But You're saying those people probably aren't like, you know, bleeding socialists. They maybe just like an idea of whatever they think it is. Right. Well, I think, you know, most people conflate socialism with at least some intended egalitarian, uh, you know, economic uh, system, some, so, something a little bit more fair. I guess why, why I would say that 40% of Americans at least believe that they support socialism or some form of socialism. What's this American socialism? You know, I, I know you're studying a bunch of the history of it, too. So what's the current socialism in 2021 in America? Maybe that. Well, the state of that current socialism is a pretty weak one, I'll, I will say. For all those people who are afraid of Ilhan Omar and AOC taking over the government, I think you, uh, you can rest easy for at least the next little while. Nikki Haley said um, not too long ago that 2020 was the year of socialism. I wish that were true. And I feel like, yes, socialism is definitely has been a buzzword over the last few years and definitely in 2020. But I think that gets us back to this idea that like most people don't I will say I, I assume that she is talking in good faith, 
although I don't really think she is. Let's assume that she is. If that's the case, then she doesn't know what socialism means because we're, we're so far from, from that project having any sort of political foothold even in this, in this country that, that it's a farce to say that okay, 2020 okay. is the year of socialism. What if anything, socialism 2020 is the year that socialism had, was, was mortally wounded. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I know that uh, I think anybody watching, paying attention, DNC probably stole the election from Bernie or that might take us down a rabbit hole. Yes. So I think, you know, just to go back to your sort of your original question of uh, what do I what do I believe in? Why? Why do I think that socialism is, you know, taking somewhat of a hold, at least in the culture, um, in the, the superstructure? You know, we kind of have to get into to what what are the, the operating causes of that? It's no mystery to anybody that like the United States, the future outlook of the United States has has changed in recent years. Definitely when we were growing up, especially, you know, pre 9-11 and then even in the, the years after 9-11, there was a, an, a sense of the inevitable invincibility of the American empire. And I think that that sense has definitely suffered in the intervening years. OK, so wait, you said there the our empire is declining is what you were saying. Yeah, I think that there's you know, it's hard to quantify exactly what that means, whether or not that's actually the case, though. I do think that is the case. I think a lot of people feel that they sense it. They, they sense uh, an empire in decline. And at the same time, even though they feel like things are, are maybe trending in a negative direction, they also see, you know, America's millionaires and billionaires increasing at the expense of everyone else. You know, even just since the pandemic, America's billionaires increased their number by 56 and seen their total wealth grow by over a trillion dollars. Uh, and at a time when, you know, like me and my coworkers are just struggling to get enough shifts to pay our rent. I think that's another thing. I think that's really exacerbated, you know, the sort of the, the pandemic and everything that's happened in the months since has exacerbated a feeling that most people already felt that like the distribution of wealth in this country was not equal, was not really that fair. And that, okay, you know, so. that, those, those, those statistics can be backed up by, you know, productivity versus wage growth over the years and that sort of thing. We can get into that a lot as well, but just to keep things more, more centered. It just, just as a, a jump in, maybe we'll drop a graph in the notes. Uh, we pull it up, but I do know that the percentage of overall income over the last few decades has gone more to capital owners than to laborers. And so the folks who are shareholders of, of, of sorts are making more per, on a percentage basis, a little bit more year over year and like in that trend. So I think that's what you're saying. And you're saying that the COVID basically quickened, uh, heightened this feeling that of separation between the haves and the haves nots. Yeah, you know, I was having a conversation with a friend yesterday and he mentioned how it's funny how like when we were growing up, Walmart, was like the evil corporation, right? And don't get me wrong, it definitely still is in my opinion. But now Amazon has very much so taken that role as sort of the the boilerplate, like this is representative of evil in this country or evil or bad capitalism in a sense. Yeah, they just um, deliver such good customer service though. It's but, really but hard. But Walmart like, was, but dang it. <laughs> hey, you can't beat that one day shipping, even if it means Dude, that somebody has to piss their pants to get it to you. Sire, same day. They're obsessed with it. Different story, sorry. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's that's a very strong motivating factor for most capitalism is a, a search for greater convenience. But Walmart was that first step of that capital really, you know, going from a, a large percentage of small capital holders um, or they represented this movement, a large percentage of small capital holders to a smaller percentage of large capital holders. OK, so let me jump in just because this is an episode or, or conversation where we've had a few of 
a minority of most of our conversations where I'm really trying to understand and bring out what you're saying. And I want to take a step in that practice. So you're using Walmart as an example, and that might not be a bad example because I just, this is again, the capitalist talking in me, but number one, a lot of Walmart, last time I checked, they don't pay a lot of their workers the living wage. So it's a good example of corporate welfare where the government basically subsidizes their workers. And what I mean is they don't have to pay themselves their, their employees enough to be a, uh, above the poverty line. So the federal government, my tax dollars actually go to subsidize food stamps for their workers. So Amazon gets away with not paying workers enough to live. And they put a bunch of suppliers out of business just because yeah, they've not got to mention, so much- I mean, like yeah. the small towns, the infinitely many uncountable number of small towns, they ravaged across this country by putting small business owners out of business. Which, well, I'm not even talking you know, small business owners like mom and pop shops. I'm talking like the milk suppliers or the whomevers that are like produce suppliers in America because of their purchasing power. They can name the terms, basically drive the producer to produce at cost or below cost because the producer basically has to have the Walmart business. And then they took their business overseas and put them out of business. That's like a, a rinse, rinse, wash and repeat thing. Sorry. Well, I- and that, that is Amazon. They, they have taken that to the, uh, the 21st into the 21st century with vigor. The, the thing about that is though, is it's not like a general company strategy or, or some specific, you know, strategy inherent to Jeff Bezos. It is the way of doing business in the modern corporate America and specifically in Silicon Valley, because essentially most companies and uh, most companies in Silicon Valley and elsewhere and and the banks, investment banks operate off of a sort of a Ponzi scheme. Careful, you're talking about one of my employers. So (laughs) well, well, we won't say which just yet. Just keep keep going that out. (laughs) But essentially, I mean, then you can attest to whether or not the truth of this. But that was what happened in at least in part in the 2008 financial crash is is borrowing off of current investors to pay back previous investors. And then the money runs out. And all of these Silicon Valley companies and investment banks today and other large corporations operate in much the same way. It's, It's very much similar to a Ponzi scheme. But the reason they're able to do that is because their investors are convinced that eventually those companies will monopolize the sector of the market that they are operating in. Okay, with so Amazon, specifically that's tech. retail. With Uber, that's, you know, that's all uh, rideshare. And as we see public infrastructure deteriorate across the country, we're going to see you know, Uber fill in those gaps and Lyft. And those, com- those companies have operated without profits for, in, in some cases, over a decade because their investors believe that eventually they will monopolize. And so while that might be a market-based reaction and it might make sense in the market, like that's not even capitalism really that we're dealing with anymore. But the thing about it is, is this is the inevitable end result of an unfettered capitalism in in my my humble opinion, but I think the opinion of a, a lot of other people who are quite a bit smarter than me. So that's sort of, I think, where we're, okay, we're so seeing it. We're, we're yeah, sort of resigned. We've become resigned to a specific path unless we make some really major changes. Okay, so you're saying, uh, I'm not saying I agree with all this, but that, that uh, what's happening in the tech industry and what's happening in, in a little bit in banking, uh, regulations and or, uh, or no regulations, like when respect to tech uh, is going to create uh, monopolies. And so you're saying monopolies are the basically the end result of capitalism. Yeah, 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 definitely. And I think if you were to give Bill Gates or Jamie Dimon or any of these people sodium pentothal, 
sit them down in a chair and make them tell you whether or not they thought capitalism was going to be a viable path in the future. They would say no. I mean, they well, think they, they see the end of capitalism just as clearly as we do. They just have a different vision for what that future is than the socialist one. OK, so just just to clarify, because one of the tenets of capitalism is uh, competition. And so you're saying that a bit of the end of capitalism is less competition through monopoly, or at least in practice, that's what you see happening as a socialist. Yeah, I do. I, I think that most of the people, the responsible adults in the room, so to speak, which is, I think, how these CEOs and finance investment bankers think of themselves, they see uh, capitalism as being generally insufficient for the very complex problems which we're, de- we're dealing with today. But of course, they're not willing to give up their wealth in order to deal with those problems or their, their influence or power. So instead, they say, well, hey, I'm a billionaire. I must be pretty smart. I must have it kind of figured out. Maybe I should just be in charge. And so that's that's ultimately and I, I don't think it's too far to say that most people can look at what's happening right now and, and the way that tech companies and other big corporations get away with just absolute murder and the taxes they pay and the subsidies they receive and the way their treatment of their workers. I don't think that's a particularly controversial statement. But the reason they can do that is because the politicians are far more accountable to them because of their just infinite sums and stores of wealth than they are to me or you or any voter because we don't have any sort of we haven't consolidated behind a block or a vision well yeah Um, i I think you might have a point there the first half uh, that saying like well you're questioning their motives i I don't know jeff bezos or jamie Dimon, and uh, it seems like these companies though in out of their own self-interest particularly the ones that are large and have a lot to gain and lose will definitely make the required changes and influences if they can um, in legislation to set conditions for like profitable future market access or whatever it is. So I do see like corporate infer- influence via lobbying to be a serious problem that actually creates roadblocks to competition and more capitalism. But I, I th- but so I think we agree on that point mostly. Is that is did I summarize okay? I think I think that summarizes it correctly, and I think that the point you you bring up that you know well you would think that they would at least want to have a viable enough future where they could continue to make money. But there is a, a part of socialism which says that the tendency of the rate of profit will eventually inevitably decline. That we eventually will just run out of ways to continue to make a profit. Um, socialism and- is saying that. Or are you saying right? Marxism, the mar- okay. Marxist theory, Marxist theory says that. And there, there's, I mean, it's a very complicated subject. And even Marx himself wasn't totally, didn't have it all figured out at the time of his death. Now, that being said, the there are certain things which allow for the continued growth of capitalism. In the United States, it was the essentially endless frontier and quote unquote free real estate that we had access to. It made growth possible to a, a degree that European countries just couldn't possibly compete. Very few other countries could because it was virgin land. Now, and, and that that enabled us to continue to grow. Okay, As quick summary. Become, huh? Sorry, quick summary. So uh, you, you hit on a fundamental tenet of socialism that uh, there really probably isn't wealth creation as uh, folks assume in capitalism. And one of the reasons why we've been able to experience uh, that increased value add particularly for the first hundred years or so was just because more and more land available to us. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things. Slavery certainly helped, 
the you know ability to create an empire out of slaves cultivating land that could not be cultivated by wages because you didn't have enough people there to do the work and they wouldn't be willing to do it because it was absolutely brutal conditions. Uh, you know, that was the, the impetus for the Industrial Revolution was was cotton. That was, you know, textiles in the UK were supplied by Southern American slave cotton. That's just how it went. Now, what Marxists and socialists would also say is that I, I would actually disagree with the point that capitalism doesn't do wealth creation. It does, undeniably. Interesting. Um, okay. And, and Marxism and socialism holds that capitalism, for all its faults, uh, was a, a critical step in the development of humanity, in the evolution of us as a species, uh, and you know to reach greater heights of our human potential. It was a next logical step from from feudalism. I'll jump in there um, too, just because I think this could uh, prevent a lot of false conversations that lead to uh, subpar conclusions. So I think a lot of Christians, particularly a lot of capitalists, will come out and say. Nothing would have gotten us out of where we were. Nothing would have gotten us here like capitalism. Like, and I agree with socialism, communism would not have gotten us to the GDP per capita that we have in the United States right now uh, because of competition, pro private property. I just think there's a lot of historians. Now, Ferguson's a good one who sort of lays out why the, why the West eclipsed the Middle East and East. And I think a lot of the tenets of capitalism are that reason. And I'm not going to argue with you very much. And I think the future on that, unless it means those same tenants will continue to help us in the future. So I just no, want to clarify I mean, I think that Marx, Marx would agree with you. And at least okay. in a general sense there. And I just think uh, that, yeah, it's not a good attack on you to say socialism wouldn't have gotten us here unless. Yeah, definitely. Because I'd okay. be like, yeah, you're right. We, okay. He, fair. The, that's, that's outlined in, in uh, historical materialism, that, that this is a, a, a progression. Now, just in the same way that there were people who resisted the changes to feudal rights and obligations and the mode of production that existed under, you know, medieval, medieval kings and, and the like, um, there are people who are resistant to changes to capitalism. But that doesn't mean just because it's the way that things have been done and things seem to be working out OK so far doesn't mean that we can't change. Fair. OK, that cues up a good discussion going forward. Future conversations are the tenets of capitalism good for the future or are the tenets of socialism good for the future? Uh, we won't try to get bogged down too much, like I said, unless it applies to the future on what got us here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's there. Yeah, we, we won't differ on that point too much. Okay. So in talking of, you know, these historical stages and these modes of production and, and like the transition, potential transition from capitalism and what's after that, I think it's important to go back and kind of nail down what this historical materialist school of thought says because it is a lot of the basis of marxism historical materialist socialism. and that is a base of socialist thought just to clarify well i mean there are there are competing schools i would say it is the most foundational one and or the base of the most foundational one and the base of marx's Karl Marx's historical analysis. Okay, educate me. I don't want to claim to say I have his historical analysis perfectly understood, but I will do my best to, uh, you know, uh, impart that to our audience. So basically what Marx says, and I think what the basis of socialism is founded on, is this idea that the history is defined by class struggle, that there are competing binaries in every historical stage, and largely those binaries are represented by in broad strokes by a ruling class that has the most access to wealth, power, infrastructure, and a working 
or slave or otherwise class that is just trying to survive. But the conflict between these two classes inevitably leads to new modes of production. Uh, so you have your ancient modes of production, you know, sort of your hunter gatherer versus uh, agricultural being the very base one. And, you know, that we can get into it a little bit in another episode more, but that's sort of where the Cain and Abel story, uh, some people have theorized, comes from. So that's sort of where it all starts. And then ancient turns to feudal, especially after the fall of the Roman Empire in Europe and the, uh, you know, accumulation of land by specific warlords and chieftains turning into nobles and vassals and this whole order of noble and feudal rights. And that was an effort to, you know, take that. That was an economic revolution at the time. It was a complete change in the way that society was structured in the way people got their the things they were necessary for their survival, the systems by which they were able to obtain those things. And in the same way as feudalism transitioned from capitalism, that was also extremely revolutionary. Uh, and that was marked by actual huge revolutions, most notably, uh, or at least to begin with, the English Civil War in the 1600s, which I think is when most scholars would say the, the real capitalism really started to reveal itself. And those were rights and contractual rights. Yeah, it was it was the beginning. I mean, Magna Carta would be the the very beginning, but that was really just nobles saying they wanted more power over their subjects than the kings did. But it still was a change in the distribution of power to lower levels. And that change continued ostensibly into capitalism as people who didn't have any noble or feudal rights were able to start making a living for themselves and they started to demand more political rights. Uh, so all these things, economic and political, are tied, obviously. But what Marx says is that the, the root of it, the, the driving force behind all of these huge historical causes is the economic conflict between a ruling class and a working class. Interesting and statement you had just made. We'll come to Marx, but I want to save it for future conversations. The tie between economic and political rights, because that makes a lot of uh, Christians and folks who want their individual liberties protected, nervous about socialism, but continue. Well, I mean, I think it should make them nervous about capitalism because I, I think, although we are certainly told that in the United States, you know, if you are poorer, you ostensibly have the same political standing, but anyone with any real sense of the world knows that's not true. Uh, and so that, that well, continues you mean like today. everyone's got an equal vote. What do, what do you want to elaborate? Well, I mean, you could, uh, I'll just use a small example. Let's talk about cash bail. Basically, I'll say anything that you can pay a fine to get out of is something that's legal for rich people and illegal for poor people. Uh, practically. The, I mean, you know, pr yeah, practically not, speaking, yeah. okay. you know, it, it costs a lot more to pay a $150 fine for a single mother of four than it does for, you know, some rich asshole. But let's not get distracted. <laughs> Watch the language. This is a family show. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Cyrus, so you're starting to talk about revolutions, and we've glanced over what I think is probably the most common confront to socialism, at least on Fox, and that is, uh, don't you know that socialism's never worked unless it be for a Christian commune, like in the early church in Acts? So when I think of socialism, I think of the, the socialist uh, party in Germany, or I think and the one run by Hitler, or the ones you know in, in the East, or the ones in the South, uh, like South America. Um, run by dictators. And so I think so although socialism conflates and, and sort of, you know, purports this idea that, oh, we're all equal. Yeah, it's typically run by a ruling class that is typically a tyrant 
Well, yeah, let's let's not dip too far into a historicity because Hitler was not a socialist. And that's maybe we could do a whole episode on that. No, I'm not saying he is. But, but I mean, hence the feasible name of his party. Right. So I'm just saying, like, sure, you got you to gotta clear this up for us just because it needs to be. Yeah, there's there's a lot to talk about there, obviously. You know, I think I would ask those listening to bear with me because I, it will take some time to get through this. But I think that there I would say right off the bat. The first thing we have to consider is, you know, we've all seen propaganda videos from North Korea or China or Russia about the United States. Kind of pretty absurdist in a way, almost like an art film, uh, you know, describing the are the ac- normal activities that we think are normal as, you know, these bizarre, horrific capitalist minded behaviors. And while I'm, you know, I'm certainly not here to defend any of those any of those regimes, what I will say is that. I think we need to consider the fact that the country who produces the most cultural products of any country in history, who has the most countries that are economically accountable to it uh, and has the furthest reach culturally, may have some interest in misrepresenting, you know, the histories of socialist countries and covering up their own misdeeds. Okay, so I think I will try to do my best to help and make sure before we just (laughs) break down right here. But you're saying, okay, because we're the history books are written by the winner and largely we've been the winner and largely we've been capitalist. It's in our favor to slant socialism and dictating regimes of socialism. I think that's what you're trying to say. You're still not doing justice to like the body count of socialist dictators. I mean, that's fair. And and while I, you know, certainly won't defend the, the murder of any innocents, I think it's also worth considering the only source we have for that body count uh, that we use officially. It was commissioned by the Central Intelligence Agency. Um, so, again, they might have a slight bias in reporting those figures. Uh, and even the authors of that report, which, you know, this is more complicated than I meant to get into, but even those authors of that report have said that they don't agree with it and they think it's uh, that it was greatly exaggerated by the people who published it. I'm Okay, so, uh, uh, sorry, yeah, I, do me a favor. Do you condemn or not condemn the the unjust killing of socialist dictators of their people in the past? I, I can I condemn the unjust killing by any authoritarians and I would count Stalin and, and Mao and, and uh, many of their contemporaries among them. Of course. Pol Pot. OK. 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 Yeah, I None mean, of that's that good. Said the CIA worked with Pol Pot. We can get into that later, too. OK, so, um, uh, so. moving us along that. Yeah, truth <laughs> you, you know, Pinochet, whatever. But is that is the socialism you want that? And is that what I mean? I think that's kind of a big misconception I've come to realize through a lot of our conversations is that's not what you're advocating. No, it's not. I mean, I was raised in a democratic society and I think that's something or, in a, you know, assumedly democratic society that's up for debate as well but i think that it's definitely important to put all of these regimes that you listed in the context of history you mean like russia was never a democracy therefore it's not going to have a democratic socialism yeah when the russian revolution happened it was run and had been run for centuries by brutal and bloodthirsty and power hungry czars who didn't care about the millions of people who lived in their country but just the continued prominence and prevalence of their regime in China, uh, you know, a dynasty, of, uh, several imperial dynasties beforehand. In the United States, you know, at least we, we believe and, and we I think we all at least hope that we have a robust democratic foundation to our political culture. And so, I mean, I certainly don't want anything, uh, you know, uh, authoritarian. While I would say that I think central planning has some definite pros, I mean, you don't need to look any farther than the companies we already talked about, Amazon and Walmart, to say that central planning 
seems to work pretty well for them. China's and I mean, another great example, but you know, I don't think that that doesn't have anything to do with, you know, exactly authoritarian or especially those, those, you know, body count figures you were talking about before. So I want to make sure that, and it's tough for me to, 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 to clarify because earlier in the conversation, we talked about how political right and economic right are really closely tied. And so I want to just be clear though, you're saying that more economic rights should be centrally distributed but that and, and ruled by like some elite class uh, but not political rights uh well i think that's or sorry just to, is it a misconception common that it's going to be ruled by an elite class break that down yeah well i mean i think you know it's uh not worth necessarily putting the cart before the horse we're not anywhere close to power so what we would be exactly ruled by i mean it would it would look a lot more similar to what we are currently under or a similar democratic form in, in my perfect vision of it than the USSR in the, uh, you know, 1940s and 50s. Thank goodness. Okay. <laughs> but I think, you know, I, I want to continue, uh, you know, co- providing some more historical context for, you know, our understanding of these, these countries and, and their histories, because, you know, like we, we think of everything in a vacuum and we say, well, you know, in the 1920s in the United States, which even though there were plenty of Pinkertons and U.S. soldiers killing striking workers who were trying to get an eight hour workday that we say like, oh, yeah, but they, they were so backwards. You know, the, the regime of uh, Stalin and the uh, famines that occurred, the forced industrialization of the economy. But it's also worth considering, like I said, that they were in that more feudal mode of production than the United States was at the same time. And the same thing with China. There was an imperative and and even an ideological imperative at the time that we have to industrialize in a somewhat capitalist sense in order to get to the ability to achieve real socialism. So, I mean, there's a lot of socialists who think the USSR was never actually a socialist country in, in actual form and function. It certainly had some different aspects uh but that a lot of those you know those problems that occurred and and the deaths of of people in in ukraine and the famines during that time or in the valley of the yangtze river in china that those were just malevolent acts by dictators trying who who didn't care about their people when in reality it was i won't say that they are completely absolved of any responsibility because if you're in leadership of a of a country or people you have responsibility for their custodianship but they also, those types of figures that say, oh, Stalin killed 30 million people in Ukraine, attribute to Stalin the powers of a god who is able to, you know, move the clouds uh, so that it doesn't rain on the fields. Or that, you know, that Chairman Mao has the power to rise the tide or lower the tide of the Yangtze River uh, so that, uh, you know, the crops can't get irrigated. When in reality, these areas and and a lot of these things and like i said i want to double down on the fact that the things that they did the purges the you know political prosecution of opponents and murders i think is i i would never defend that but what i will say is that the figures i think are quite a bit bloated i mean hell in the uh classic hundred million figure that we get about the deaths of uh, casualties of socialism that includes all the nazis the united the ussr killed in world war ii how is that fair if that's the case then we're we're just as Nazi killing as they are. Well, hopefully, yeah. I mean, we, we well, like not to... quite. They certainly killed a lot more than we did. Though. We're the back-to-back World War champs. Don't you forget it. So, <laughs> okay. So, how, okay. How... So, to summarize, you're basically saying you don't trust the figures, and you're saying that a lot of the things that were attributed to them, as far as problems, famines, everything else, is 
probably they're getting all the blame and they're not getting any of the credit of like they're bringing some of their country into into a more modern era. And I'm really being generous because we're not talking about all the deaths, but central planning got them out of uh, feudalism quick is what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, for whatever it's worth, and you can say this is necessary sacrifices or not, but the fall of the USSR in Eastern Europe led to the most, the quickest decline in mortality rates, in starvation, or the quickest uh, increase, I guess I should say, in the uh, infant mortality rates, uh, starvation, inability of people to to survive in those countries. And, And like I said, like they're not certainly not perfect. But it's also worth considering the fact that the most powerful country in the world had as its modus operandi for literal decades to do anything they could to destabilize any potential socialist country, even the democratic ones. Henry Kissinger, when he wanted to uh, overthrow the democratically elected socialist president of Chile, Salvador Allende, he wasn't afraid of Chile because uh, he was worried they were going to destroy the economy. He was worried because it would work. Because, well, I mean, oh, would... oh, no, if they're able, able to democratically elect a socialist and their policies actually work, there's no bigger threat than that. And it wasn't long before he was assassinated. The United States installed the dictator like Pinochet to uh, lead them to a capitalist neoliberal paradise, which we were promised. Well, I do think our kicking over of uh, other countries, democratically, democratically elected officials that happen to be more socialist communist. Uh, Iran's a good example. A lot of other countries in Central South America. We've had a little bit of blowback, right? Because then we, you know, support a strong man who's not communist, and we've been paying the last couple of decades for that. So, like, I, I get what you're saying there. I guess I just want at least people who are listening to realize that it's not a few isolated cases. It is just literal okay. in the tens and twenties and thirties of assassinations, attempted coups, and this is stuff that they have told us with the release of classified documents. Not stuff that I'm sure. making up out of thin air. And I'm not trying to stick up for Kissinger. Pretty, you know, he separated the Russians and the Chinese for us. But there was this domino theory thing that everyone seemed to buy into. So that was the reality at the time. We didn't want any countries falling to communism, socialism, because it was us versus them and yada, yada. So, yeah, if we don't kill, you know, millions of them, then they'll kill millions of us. Well, yeah, <laughs> if we're not responsible for the deaths of uh, careful, the, I know, mean, you know, two million Indonesian workers who were murdered, we were told and, uh, that, that, you know, they would bury communist raids. So I think it's very fair to say that they thought it was us versus them and we thought it was us versus them. So it, all I'm saying is just a different political reality. But what you're saying and to move us on is that the United States was markedly against uh, not just in marketing, but in actual uh, power consolidation in different countries socialist regimes so again uh, if i'm putting it i together, think i just got, I, I mean i said all that successful, there hasn't been a successful regime because we've been against it the whole freaking time it's hard to uh build a base of power when all your leaders get killed or or bought off or arrested is all fair enough fair enough and i'm sure that that won't convince many people but i uh hope that we can continue to talk about it as we go Okay, fair. So I think you still have me semi-interested in some of the tenets of socialism under, yeah, where we go from here. And that is that history is a checkered past and we haven't given socialism a fair shake and an American socialism would be different than those because of our political culture. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's that's a fair representation of my views Okay, in a, in a general sense. But yeah, I mean, like, so that obviously leaves us with, well, what do we what do we do now? 
And that's a tough question as a socialist to answer, because in my opinion, this year, I mentioned previously, has seen the most wholesale defeat of any sort of social force that could potentially evolve into some more egalitarian economic mode of production, just absolutely crushed at every turn and left without anywhere to go. I think you added members to the squad. That doesn't that's not a victory. Uh, Well, now that we have, yeah, seven, six or seven members in the uh, 530 uh, body uh, Congress. Yeah, I'm sure we're we're about we're just there. We're so close. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Not to mention the fact that, you know, the in my opinion, most popular political candidate for the Democratic presidency was, you know, completely shut down by the Democratic Party. And from my perspective, and I think many people's on the left's uh, was seen that the Democratic Party was more feared losing to Bernie more than they feared losing to Trump. And they did actions that were in line with that in order to see his his defeat and then left us without anywhere to go. I mean, even Bernie himself ended up consolidating with the Democrats. And so now there is absolutely no political, real, real political leadership for a socialist movement. There's no socialist organization. There's no uh, disciplinary body that can hold any of these politicians to account. There is the lowest labor uh, unionization rates in essentially since the beginning of unionization began in this country. Uh, And they're all led by, well, I'll hold off so I'm not accused of libel. But uh, let's just say their, their leadership could use some upgrades. So now we find ourselves in a place where, where where do we really go? And I think that, you know, kind of brings me back to the genesis of this podcast, why I thought it might be a worthwhile project to pursue, because I've been very interested in the idea of faith at a time when I feel like I've committed my life to a project that seems like it has an almost impossibly little chance of success. And, you know, as we continue to have those conversations over the summer and then as the year continued, it started to really open up my eyes to the importance of faith in any sort of political, any endeavor, really, especially a mass political endeavor, um, because it requires so many different levels of faith. It requires a level of faith in yourself that you are, could be potentially useful, that you have something to offer. It uh, requires a level of faith in your comrades and the people around you, your, your neighbors, your family members, your friends, that they're there with you. They're fighting side by side. And it requires a level of faith that all of the sacrifices that you're currently making will lead to something. So as we started to have more conversations about religion and and politics and where they maybe intersect and where they could intersect, it opened up my eyes to the power of faith that I maybe didn't give enough credit to uh, in the years after I left the church and how important it is to regaining our sense of common humanity is regaining that sense of faith in each other. And I think that in my opinion, would be best done through finding common cause with our fellow humans. And in that common cause, most largely represented by the economic exploitation that all workers face, some, some admittedly more than others, but no matter, no matter what, if you're working for a wage in this country, your employer is making more money from you than they're giving to you. Some can say that's a fair shake, but where does the line go? I think the, the more we are able to hone in on these common economic interests the more we'll be able to sort of find our way back to that sense of common humanity. Uh, You know, being able to move away from a model of competition, which is capitalism, to a model of cooperation, which in, you know, I think my idealized world would would be socialism, is not only, I think, better 
or more politically necessary. It's at, it's it's completely vital to the project of humanity. You know, we we know what we've created. We've created weapons which can destroy us with the at the you know push of a button. We've created a energy system which uh, is absolutely threatening existentially. Uh, there's a reason why, you know, when Trump says, hey, oh, Barack Obama, you built the cages. Hey, Joe Biden, you built the cages. There's truth to that. And there's a reason that Democratic administrations who, you know, speak to, you know, the problems of immigrants and, and black and brown bodies and spaces and, and all this talk is because they're covering up for the fact that they understand that, that the catastrophe is on the horizon, that the good times are coming to an end and it's time to start picking up your pieces and locking your doors behind you. And that, that is what we're going to be faced with, I think, as we, as we go into the future. We're going to be faced with a world where billionaires, millionaires, and the people in positions of power understand and have a much better understanding of the fact that things aren't really going to get better under the current system, but it would be too hard to change and they'd have to give up too much. So instead, they're going to take what they can while they can and uh, make sure nobody else gets any and try to hold out as long as they can. That, that, that is that is to me, I think what their behavior is, it's absolutely written in their behavior. You know, why, why else would Jeff Bezos need to accumulate the amount of money that he has? A guy who could solve world hunger and still have over $100 million holds on to that. And, and that's because he has to. He feels let like me, he has to. Let me recap. I think what you're uh, you, I appreciate you making an ode to faith and being open to it, saying in the wake of the defeat of socialism, from your perspective, you're open to faith, you're open to new partnerships. So you're coming to play on my Christian sensibilities and seeing if I'm open to class struggle. Yeah, but, man. It's what all the cool Christians are doing. No, no. I think <laughs> you've got something there, though, that like I really like your analysis, or your observation that the Democratic establishment's really playing on identity politics and not talking about class politics or maybe a, a more modern phraseology of what I think class politics is, is like, hey, issues and legislation that matter to the people that are like below the upper class that helps um, social mobility, that help us achieve. There used to be in Congress vigorous debates about the length of the working day and about the wages that people needed to survive. And those debates are gone. They don't exist anymore. And it's because, well, there's a lot of reasons. And I think this would require a deeper dive into, you know, a more historical period, the 1970s specifically. But that was a time when they realized they could no longer offer those things in good faith. I mean, they could they could make noises about it, but they couldn't really ever put anything down on paper. And, uh, and that's when you saw this decline in union membership, union density, yeah, lack in wages versus productivity, all that stuff. Yeah, this is where I, I come in and say we might have an intersection and our views maybe like do a crisscross X here. But I see both the economic interests from both parties uh, being in favor of things like fr- uh, free trade. And I've over the last couple of decades, I think we've seen like almost an economic hollowing out of inner cities and rural uh, America, manufacturing. All of a sudden, when I look at my, my own political expression, my beliefs sort of to, to, I think, match what you're saying, I'm getting told, hey, vote for social values, but potentially economic interests that are against what I want or what's good for me. And so I feel like I'm getting manipulated a little bit. And yeah, so, and I think that's that's why we've seen the, the, the you know working classes of this country start to move to the Republican Party is because they they see like people aren't dumb they can see that the democratic party is no longer offering them anything that will meaningfully change their life in, in a material sense and so why would you want to be a part of that movement and then also especially if you're you know white working class and then also be told 
Uh, yeah. Also, you're evil. You can't possibly be not racist. You, uh, you know, you have real no chance of redemption. All you can do is just, you know, accept your guilt with grace and live your your life uh, in poverty uh, with with some dignity. Thank goodness um, someone else sees it. Um, and I think fascinating for you. That's an evil like, mentality. Yeah, that, that that's 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 a trip um, to hear you say all that. Um, but I think, you know, kind of just to bring things back to making my final case for socialism, I see it as rather a, a restriction on democracy as a democratization, a further democratization of our lives. You know, yeah, we live in a democracy in the sense that we can vote for our political actors who, yeah, are so clearly accountable to what we want them to do. But even beyond that, you know, we, most people spend eight, hour day, eight, eight hours of their day, 40 hours of their week, at least, working for a boss who is really not any different from a dictator in terms of your actual, you know, uh, relationship to them. And, and that, that extends to so many other things, your people's landlords, you know, the, 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 all these people that hold some sort of economic leverage over you. That is not democracy. Well, certainly not democracy. And I'm not saying democracy perfectly translates over to all those situations. What I am saying is that there's actually a lot of room for more freedom in this country and that we are that, that those who think we've reached our freest are, 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 in my opinion, greatly mistaken. Well, I will say when you talk about freedom and you want to talk about tying together economic and political things, I can make or save my company a lot of money um, as, you know, still first couple of years working for them. And I'm a superb I have, I figured out, I have a superb ability, not at earning bonuses, but making shareholders rich. And so I, uh, you know, when you look at the compensation packages of folks, you know, and they're eternally grateful to you, I'm sure. Well, you know, and and nothing has made me ever, uh, look at the Bernie Sanders platform and go, Hmm, maybe until I start looking at, uh, my bonus versus other folks. Yeah. You know, it's like, I mean, I'm no, I'm no investment baker. I'm a waiter, but it's like when uh, you have a table who, uh, you, you finish up with them and they're like, oh, you were so great. I love, you know, I just love being served by you. I hope to see you again next time I'll ask for you. And then they tip you 7%. <laughs> and you're like, oh, wow. We, you know, you could show your gratitude by putting food in my mouth. But, you know, uh, we need to go with more waiter vignettes because I, I know you've got a lot of good ones. Um, okay. So <laughs> you've, you've wrapped this up through uh, what, what you see socialism. You see some problems with capitalism. I know that there's a lot more there. And I think what needs to be done is I need to challenge you on some of that. I, I want to explore more of the places, though, that you're willing to cooperate and where you see some some potential like, hey, odes to Christians, odes to conservatives, where you think we're getting hoodwinked. Uh, but next episode, I'll probably lay out why I have approached uh, where I'm at, how I really started following Jesus and how that's maybe made me question some of the boilerplate things that's got me sort of at this middle ground and go, I- I'll listen to you. I'm not going to say I'm going to believe you, but you know, like I said, we've got some, we've got more similarities maybe than I think. Yeah. And I think, you know, hopefully that comes through as well. I'm really looking forward to digging into that side of things a little bit more. I feel like that's a topic that in private, even we've skirted around the edges on a little bit um, because I think it's a tender spot, but I think that it will have a a lot of opportunities for nice. uh, No more skirts in private. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, cool, man. Um, Is there anything else that you wanted to think a point you feel like you didn't get through as you've laid it out, I know we, we jumped around some of the things that we've talked about before. No, no. And I'm sure there'll be plenty of socialists to, uh, you know, get in my hate you about, uh, you know, misrepresenting certain views. And uh, I'm sure there'll be, you know, plenty well, of then maybe we have a, you know, retake episode. We're like, all right, this is a, uh, you know, to 
to make the uh, the crazies happy. Yeah, that's right. The Those are my people. <laughs> yeah, that's that's my side of the fan base. Yeah, right. On. No, sorry, sorry. I appreciate it. I appreciate you being vulnerable and and laying it out because I think that there's you did say, uh, United States has essentially been attacking attacking socialism and communism um, since its inception, and there's probably a point in there that you know what the history books we write have our flavor to it i think there is some stuff underneath it that we need to get into like all right are your tenants better for the future or is capitalisms and that sort of thing so yeah i appreciate it sir i love you very much love you too talk soon man that we speak. We do not come as aggressors. Our war is not a war of conquest. We are fighting in defense of our homes, our families, and posterity. This has been Cross of Gold. Thank you for listening. Uh, I'd like to thank Sant Invictus for producing our intro and outro songs, and uh, look forward to seeing you next time.